Severn until week three now of our series. We're calling Law School, and uh, we've called this series Law School because in it we are looking at the law of God, um, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments. This is a ten-week series. Each week we're looking at one of these commandments, and today we have arrived at the third commandment, which states, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Uh, Before we get to the text that's going to expound on the meaning of that command, I wanted to um, take a few minutes on the front end of our time together, making sure that we really understand what this command's about, because even though this is a really famous command, I think it's famously misunderstood. So uh, a lot of times, and I'll just say, if if this is you, please don't feel bad, because I was born and raised in the church, um, and... For the vast majority of my life, when I've heard the command, don't take the Lord's name in vain, uh, many people understand that simply to mean you shouldn't use God's name like you use profanity. Like you should never invoke the name of God um, because you're upset or disgusted at some unfavorable circumstance that's befallen you. And I want to be clear, we should not do that. Uh, We wouldn't use anybody's name that way. We definitely should not use God's name that way. But I'll just say that if that is the only way that you understand the third commandment, uh, you've really just barely scratched the surface. So to understand what this, this commandment's really getting at, the first question we got to ask is, what does it mean to take somebody's name or use somebody's name in the first place? And actually, in a culture that's as success-driven and image-driven as ours is, it's actually really common to use somebody's name. People do it all the, all the time uh, because names are, are really powerful things. And to kind of give you a simple Um, example of what I'm talking about that I'm sure probably everybody here can relate to. Um, If you don't know me, I have four children under the age of 10, and about a dozen times a day, one of my kids comes up to me and tells me they don't like something that one of my other kids is doing. And my staple advice is, tell them to stop. And the uh, staple response that I get back is, I already tried that. And so then I shift gears and say, all right, tell them that I told them to stop. And nine times out of ten, that ends it right there, situation resolved, that I can hear the discussion in the other room. And uh, the reason for that, I think we all understand what, what actually is going on there. <clears throat> what happened is that when one of my children tried to speak in their own name, uh, or kind of uh, another way to think about that, operate in their own authority, that's what they're doing, they didn't get what they wanted. But when they invoked my name and therefore borrowed my authority, uh, they were able to get what they wanted because, I don't mean to brag here, but in my house, my name's pretty powerful. I'm the guy you want to know, all right? Um, and that's it's a simple story, but that shows the power of a name. Names, um, particularly powerful names, they confer power on us. Influential names give us influence. And that's why, um, basically, to get anywhere in life, you, you kind of have to use names. I mean, that's what a referral is. We use people's names to get into the schools we want to get into, to get the jobs we want to get, to get accepted into the circles we want to get accepted into. And even on occasion, we use people's names to get out of situations that we really wish we had not gotten ourselves into. The point is names are really powerful. There's one particular time in my life when I had the opportunity to use a very powerful name in vain. Um, my fire school class was the largest fire academy in the history of the Anne Arundel County Fire Department. There was 150 of us. And we didn't find this out until after the academy started, but um, just in the weeks prior to the, the start date of the academy, December 4th, 2008, 
uh, the county and the fire department had a business meeting, and it was decided that the county could not afford us, and so we all officially lost our jobs. They started calling recruits, which I'm really thankful I didn't get one of those phone calls because it would have been very difficult for me to hear. I mean, we had, we had been through what was, I think, over a year-long hiring process. We passed our written exam, our, our CPAT, and its candidate physical agility test. We'd been cleared by a doctor that we were healthy enough to go through the academy, extensive background interviews. It was a very just taxing, exhausting process. We got our conditional letters of employment, and they told us, show up you know, at the Fire Academy December 4, 2008. But in that moment, we were all officially unemployed. Now, sometime over the next few days, again, we didn't find this out till later, but sometime over the next few days, in the weeks before the academy began, uh, there was an individual <clears throat> who uh, went by the name of Battalion Chief Michael Cox who went to bat for us, and he overturned that decision, and I don't know how he did it, but from what I understand, he was basically the sole reason that we actually got to be professional firefighters slash EMTs for the Anne Arundel County Fire Department. Uh, what's really interesting is I am related to a Michael Cox. I'm just not related to that Michael Cox. However, and this is the point of this story, no one in my fire academy class knew that I was not related to that Michael Cox. So when we first met him, I think it was the first or second day of the academy, when he walked in the room, every recruit knew that when we looked at him, we were looking at the man. He had what we referred to as, <clears throat> and this is a technical term, swagger. I don't know if you've ever met an individual like this, but it made sense once we got to know him uh, how he could have kind of single-handedly overturned this decision and got our jobs back. And, and uh, because we shared the same last name, more times than I can count, I would have people coming up to me in the academy and even out in the field asking me, hey, is that your dad? Because we both had dark hair and you know, similar build and all that kind of stuff. And every time they came up to me and asked me that question, I was presented with the opportunity to use his name. And like I mentioned, it was a very powerful name to use. If I had, you know, kind of posed as his relative or, you know, basically an extension of him, somebody that was very, you know, closely connected to him, then I could have used that supposed tie, that connection to influence people. I mean, every um, RTO I had in the academy worked directly for him. He was their boss. Uh, so I could have used his name to influence situations and manipulate things and try to avail myself to all kinds of privileges However, had I done that, I would have, in the biblical sense of the word, I would have been using his name in vain because, at the end of the day, I didn't know him and he didn't know me. We didn't have any relationship. I, I didn't know what he was like, who he was, what his will was, so therefore I couldn't speak or act on his behalf. And so, you know, using his name, I guess, would have been fun for a time, but it would have eventually blown up in my face. And when it did, it would have cost me, at the very least, my reputation, worst case scenario, my career. Because it's a really big deal to use somebody's name in vain, specifically when it's a powerful person's name. Now, with that concept in mind, I would just put before you this morning, there is no name that is more powerful than the name of God. Therefore, it is a really big deal to use his name in vain. <clears throat> so before we get to the text that we're going to be in this morning, let me just make this point. Maybe you've never heard this before or never thought about this before. Like I said, I went most of my life without knowing it either. But having said all this, um, the third commandment is not about profanity. It's about hypocrisy. That's what it is to take the Lord's name in vain. It's about moving through life, pretending that you have a personal, deep connection with God, 
that you are his representative, that you are his spokesperson, that you are his ambassador, that if somebody wants to know what he's like, they simply need to look at you. Meanwhile, there's no spiritual reality to back up that claim. That's what it is to take the Lord's name in vain. And what we're going to look at today is, in my opinion, the single best passage of Scripture that deals with this particular topic. Uh, We actually were here not too long ago. But uh, the good news about the Word of God is it's living and active, and so you can spend a whole lot of time in one passage and pull a whole bunch of different things out of it. Uh, So we're going to be in chapter 7 of Matthew's gospel account, and I just want to read three verses to you. It's verses 21, 22, and 23. This is Jesus speaking. And pay real careful attention to the verbiage. You'll see why this is, I think, the perfect text uh, to deal with this topic. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. This is God's word. If you had to summarize uh, what we're looking at there, basically Jesus is saying that a whole lot of people are going to get to the end of their life and realize they've broken the third commandment. This isn't a, a small group of, of uh, you know, religious zealots or you know, people that belong to a particular cult. Jesus said many people are going to move through this life uh, claiming to be God's people, they're, they're going to live a life that on the surface appears that they really are God's people, and they themselves actually are going to be convinced to a degree that they are God's people. But when they get to the end of their life, they're going to learn that they've been living a lie, and they have taken the Lord's name in vain. And, and one of the things that all of those people have in common, when you, when you look at this exchange between them and Jesus, that Jesus says is going to be the exchange for so many people, one of the things they all have in common is they didn't realize what they were doing until it was too late to do anything about it. So I really have one question that I want to aim all of our time together this morning at. The question is, how do I make sure I don't do that? To answer that question, this teaching has two parts to it. And the first part We're going to look at what what Jesus says is the profile of an individual who is using his name in vain. And then secondly, we're going to learn what it means to do the opposite of that, which, you know, this is probably a strange-sounding phrase, but the opposite of taking his name in vain is to take his name in reality. So the second part of our time together is going to be spent looking at what it means to take the name of God in reality. First and foremost, uh, let's look at... um, the people that Jesus says are, are using his name in vain. <clears throat> he talks about in verse 22. He says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Uh, there's three things to highlight about the kind of person that Jesus describes here. First off, when this person approaches Jesus, They call him Lord. The Greek word that's used there is the same as the name that is assigned to God in the Greek translation of the uh, Old Testament, something that we call the Septuagint. The point is, uh, this this person that Jesus is talking about here, first and foremost, what's clear is they know their Bible really well. 
and they have beliefs that are informed by their Bible. They can get the doctrine test, you know, passed. Uh, this is not somebody with these crazy aberrant beliefs or, or false ideas about Jesus. This is somebody who is coming before Jesus with, a, with a, um, an understanding that he is who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. He is divine. He's not just a man. So first off, this is a person, Jesus says, that has orthodox belief. They could sign the statement of faith at you know, any orthodox church. Secondly, Jesus says when they, when they come to him, they don't just say, Lord, they say, Lord, Lord. Uh, in the Bible, whenever you see the repetition of a word or a phrase, that's meant to convey intensity of emotion. Point being, this is not just a person that has cold, dead orthodoxy. This is a person who is emotionally engaged. Right? Maybe they had some kind of um, mountaintop experience at Bible camp when they were a kid, and you know, they walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or got baptized. There was some sort of response. This is the type of person that maybe is moved to tears in worship services. There's a the type of person that the other people around them look at and, and point to and think of and say, man, that person, I wish I had that kind of passion. I wish I had that kind of excitement for my faith. Right? This is a person who's emotionally engaged. But thirdly and lastly, uh, look at what Jesus says this person did with their life. First off, they say, wait a minute, Jesus, I prophesied in your name. And what that means at the very least is that this person knew the message of Jesus to the point that they were able to teach the message of Jesus to others. They carried it to others. And then they go on and say, I I drove out demons in your name. I did many miracles in your name. Point being, this is a person that has been deeply involved in the lives of other people. And their, their service in the lives of other people has led to liberation and healing and transformation. This is the type of person that on the surface, at least, it really looks like God is working through them. So again, this is not somebody that's living this kind of um, overtly immoral or you know, obviously self-centered life. This is the type of person that at their funeral, there's going to be all kinds of people coming forward saying, I'm, I'm so thankful to know that person. I wouldn't be who I am without their presence in my life. So you, you just stop here and really think about the profile that Jesus is holding up here And this is a person that looks like they have all the boxes checked. This is a person that that looks like, I mean, they know the right answers. They seem excited. And when you look at their life on the surface, they're serving people. And, you know, you ask yourself, I mean, how many people could this describe? I mean, ultimately, the the individual Jesus is talking about here, uh, actually the individuals, because Jesus says this is going to be many people's experience. This could easily be the pastor of a growing church. A church where people are getting saved, it's active in the community, it's, you know, it just looks like this kind of hub of God's activity. And Jesus looks at this person, at this person, and says, I never knew you. It's not like you used to be in, but because of this, no, there's never any relationship. There was never any connection. I, Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And before we move on from this, when you talk about these things, there's always this risk of creating a false dichotomy. So let's just, for, for, for my sake, I just want to kind of make sure my conscience is clear. I want to make sure that we, we understand what Jesus is not saying here. Obviously, Jesus is not saying uh, that you should not have orthodox doctrine. He's not saying that you should not be emotionally engaged or that you should not be serving other people and trying to extend the grace of God to other people through your you know, the exercising of your gifts in, in the community that place you a part of. Certainly, Jesus is not saying there's anything wrong with that. Actually, we could look at all kinds of verses in the Bible, Old and New Testament, that talk about how all of those things should be present in the life of everybody who claims to be a part of God's people. But here's Jesus' point. He's saying that if those things 
orthodox doctrine, emotional engagement, you know, active in the community. Jesus is saying, if those things are all you have, then those things are not enough. That's what he's saying. That you can have all of that in your life. Meanwhile, there is no um, spiritual substance to you to back up the faith that you claim. And so that's, you know, we, we didn't spend a ton of time on it, but that's kind of the first half of this teaching. So if that's the profile that Jesus gives us, of somebody who is taking his name in vain, then the question is, what does it mean to take his name in reality? What must be present in a person's life that Jesus says so many people are going to discover was lacking in theirs? And I've combed you know, this passage and the verses around it, and after a week's worth of studying, um, I just want to give you one answer to that question based on what Jesus says here. One thing that must be present in an individual's life in order for them to take the name of God in reality rather than in vain. And it's found here in verse 21 where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, if you just take this verse for what it is, it is remarkable how much emphasis Jesus places on this. What he's saying here is the only people that make it into this thing called the kingdom of heaven, the only ones who will make it are the ones who do the will of of his Father in heaven. So given that, I think it's important that we understand exactly what Jesus is saying. And if we're honest, I think we can admit that what he's saying at first glance looks kind of confusing. Because you hear me say this in some way, shape, or form every week, the whole thing that makes Christianity unique and stand out from other belief systems like Buddhism or Islam or Confucianism or Judaism or whatever it is, is that Christianity teaches there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Christianity teaches there is nothing we can do to make God save us or or earn his love or approval or favor or acceptance or earn our way to heaven. And yet Jesus is saying here that the thing that's missing in so many people's lives is that they did not do the will of the Father. So what does that actually mean? First off, let's be clear about what it does not mean. Jesus is absolutely not teaching here that you don't get to go to heaven unless you do a whole bunch of good things as though doing a bunch of good things will get you into heaven. We know that because the group of people Jesus is talking about in these verses did that. They did a whole bunch of good things, probably more good things than, than, than some of us have. The group of people Jesus is talking about here are not those who have lied and cheated and stolen and oppressed and misused power and all that kind of stuff. These are people who have lived incredibly moral lives and done a lot of good in other people's lives. And yet Jesus says to to the people that have lived those lives, he calls them lawbreakers, and he says the one thing that they needed to do that they did not do is the will of the Father. And so again, let me ask the question, what exactly does that mean? If you look at the phrasing Jesus uses here when when he's talking about doing the will of the Father, which is a phrase that appears all over the place in the Bible, that's the language of servitude. Somebody who does someone else's will is that person's servant. When you do somebody's will, what it means is that there's no longer any distinction between your will and theirs. And so I say that to, to say this. And really, if you only pull one thing from today's teaching, I hope you'll just hang on to this, this particular idea. 
What Jesus is saying here is a person who takes the name of God in reality rather than in vain. A person who takes the name of God in reality is not a person who just does a bunch of good things. It's a person who completely surrenders control of their life to God in all things. It's a person who comes to God with a posture of heart that says from, from here on out, I will obey anything you command me and accept anything you send me, whether I understand it or not. There's no longer a difference between your will and mine. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Now, if we can take a self-inventory and get honest about how we all approach life, certainly the Bible tells us that this is true about ourselves, whether or not we're, we're willing to admit it, but there's a tendency in every human heart to when we approach God, to approach him as, as basically, not a counselor, to, to basically approach God as a consultant, as though he offers us advice that we then kind of mull over and consider uh, what we finally want to do with. What Jesus is getting at here, when he talks about doing the will of the Father, Jesus is talking about no longer approaching God as a consultant, but instead approaching him as a king. And when you approach a king, you do so with this understanding that whatever that king commands, it doesn't really matter if you understand why he's commanding that particular thing. Uh, you, you, it doesn't matter whether or not what he's commanding makes sense to you or you see how it could lead to a positive outcome. It doesn't matter whether or not that king's command coincides with your plans for your life. You simply obey because he's the king and you're not. That's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about doing the will of the Father. Now, that's pretty... Maybe I've stated this differently than you've heard it before, but this is not a new idea. This idea, basically all I'm doing is I'm trying to put a little bit of meat on the bones of this idea of give your life to God. Give him control of your life. Put your trust in him. That's all we're talking about. But here's the unsettling thing about this passage to me. The people that Jesus is dealing with here didn't know that they hadn't done that. Right? When they come to Jesus, just read the passage for what it is. If you look at this exchange that Jesus says he's going to have with so many people on Judgment Day, they're not coming to him saying, yeah, we know we've been living a lie and it was fun while it lasted, but the jig's up, let's get this thing over with. They're shocked to find out they hadn't, do, hadn't done what they needed to do. Why? Because it's, it, it's so easy for us to lie to ourselves. I think we're better at lying to ourselves than we are lying to anybody else. It is totally possible to live in self-deception. So the question this should raise for you and I is, how do we know if we've done this? How do I know if I'm just a moral person relying on my own efforts or I've actually done the will of the Father? I've actually handed control of my life over to God. How can I actually know that? And I'm going to answer that question specifically today. If you want to find out whether or not you've given control of your life over to God, all you need to do is look at how you respond when God says something you don't like. To kind of ex explain what I mean there, let me offer you a thought experiment that is probably going to get a little touchy on the front end, but just bear with me. <clears throat> I think it's uh, in indisputable, at least in the United States, in this cultural moment, that the greatest dividing line that exists between people uh, is the political dividing line. Uh, that's the line between left and right, red and blue, liberals and conservatives. Is it hot in here? Is that just me? <laughs> so let's say you're, you're listening to this, and, uh, and you're more of a liberal person, 
more modern, more relativistic. Uh, if you, as a liberal person, begin getting interested in a relationship with God and you start you know, reading what God has to say in his word, then there are parts of scripture that you are going to find yourself deeply aligned with. I'll give you some examples. Probably you're going to really like the parts of scripture that talk about God's heart for justice for the poor and the oppressed. Uh, you're probably going to love the commands in the New Testament that deal with uh, loving and accepting and demonstrating kindness uh, especially to people who are deeply different than us and have arrived at different conclusions than us. You're going to love the stories in the gospel accounts of how Jesus seems to have this heart for the down and outer and the outcast and the one that the religious leaders had written off and kind of ostracized. And especially in the book of Acts, you're going to love this picture of God's desire to pull men and women out of every nation, tribe, and tongue and create this family uh, in which the boundaries that seem to divide people are done away with in his church. When you read those things, your heart is going to beat. Similarly, if you approach the word of God as a, a more conservative, a more uh, traditional, maybe a more moralistic person, again, when you read through the Bible, you're going to find that there are parts of Scripture that, that really speak to you, that you find are, are, are deeply... Um, in aligned with, you know, the, the core parts of, of who you are. I mean, some examples. You're probably going to love the parts of Scripture that talk about the necessity of hard work and taking responsibility for your actions. You're probably going to love when you see Jesus interact with people and actually tell them to repent of their sin. You're, you're probably going to love the parts of Scripture that lay out God's design for marriage and his parameters for human sexuality and, and, you know, the parts of Scripture that clearly teach that God has conferred a certain inalienable dignity and value and sanctity over all human life, even life that is as yet in the womb. You're going to love those parts of Scripture. But, but here's where I'm going with this. Regardless of your temperament or your upbringing or, you know, whatever political ideology you subscribe to, what we will all eventually discover when we move through the whole counsel of God is that somewhere along the way, God has this tendency to say things that we don't like, which just makes sense. Of course it does. If there is a God that infinitely transcends human culture and is infinitely wiser than us, whose gospel is moving into every nation, tribe, tongue, time, place, and culture, then, of course, a God of infinite wisdom is going to at least occasionally say things that challenge people from every culture. The only reason we should expect that to not happen is if we were infinitely wise ourselves. And so the tendency when we come across those places of Scripture is to hold on to the things that, that we really like that we're, that we're in agreement with, and to let go of or to ignore or to actively look down on with a kind of disdain the things God says that we don't like. With this posture of heart that says you can't seriously expect a modern person, a civilized person, you know, somebody in the 21st century really believes something like that. And I, and I say all this to simply make this point. If you find yourself uh, agreeing with the parts of Scripture that you like, and sort of discarding the parts of Scripture, the things that God has said that you don't like, then what has happened in your life is you have reduced God from a king to a consultant. Because at the end of the day, when God's will crosses that of your own, you are your final authority. 
You're the arbiter of good and evil, of right and wrong. You ultimately determine the parameters of your life. And really, you're sitting enthroned above what God has said, determining what's right and, and, and what's not. And what Jesus would say to that mindset is you've not done the will of the Father because you've not surrendered your will to his. And maybe, maybe you did prophesy in his name and do things that other people looked at and said there's no way they could do that apart from the power of God. And maybe lives were transformed because of your service, because of the calories that you burned, because of the things that you did, the people that you helped. But Jesus would say what he is saying here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, that in all of that, what you did, you did in vain. Because the one thing you never did was hand over ultimate control of your life to the God who made you and sent his son to save you. <clears throat> when you think through this idea long enough, and, and this actually is a, is a thought I've never had before putting this teaching together, but when you think through this idea long enough, what this means is that at the end of the day, the only way for you to tell if you are actually a Christian if you are actually a follower of Jesus, if you have actually surrendered your life to God and been filled with his Holy Spirit, let me, let, me, let me state this again. The only way for you to be able to tell if you're actually in is by looking at the areas of your life where your will and God's will do not naturally align and then look at how you respond. That's actually all you need to do. If you want to kind of cut to the chase, you know, get to the, the, the spoiler alert, the quickest way to find out uh, who's actually in control of your life, who's actually sitting on the throne, it's not about looking at all the good things that we've done. It's not about looking at all the areas of our life where we happen to agree with God. We're all going to have areas of our lives that we agree with God because of this thing called common grace. The question we need to be asking ourselves in light of what Jesus has said here is, what do I do when God and I don't agree? When what he's saying doesn't make sense to me? when it's cutting deeply across the grain of everything, uh, all of my most deeply held thoughts, ideas, opinions, and desires. Because how we respond then, more than anything else, reveals not only where we stand with God, but actually where he stands with us. And if you look, the story of Scripture, end to end, Genesis to Revelation, what, putting this teaching together, what is so clear to me is that God is so faithful, and every man and woman he's ever dealt with, God is so faithful to bring us to points in our lives where we have to make that decision for ourselves. So let me just bring this, you know, as ground level as I can. I'm sure at least one of the things I'm about to say is going to hit home for everybody, and obviously these questions are all rhetorical. But let me ask you, how do you respond when you're Abraham and you are being asked to lay down that which you hold most dear? How do you respond when you're Joseph and you have experienced so much injustice but you've held on to your integrity you have refused to compromise but all it's gotten you is you're just thrown from one pit into the next how do you respond when when you're like Moses you've dedicated your whole life to something to a goal just like Moses dedicated his entire life to leading the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt across the wilderness he's on the border of the land of Canaan, the promised land. God takes him up on a mountain and lets him see it, and he says, you don't get to enter that land. What do you do when, when, when you're like King David and God has legitimately given you a promise? He legitimately anointed David, the rightful king over Israel, and yet David still had to leave 
live eight years of his life on the run from a murderous King Saul, and he's got the, the people closest to him are in his ear saying, just kill him. God keeps delivering him to you. Stop waiting for God to work this thing out and work it out yourself. What do you do when you're Job? You have experienced unimaginable suffering, and you never get to find out why, or finally, when you are like the Apostle Paul, and you have prayed and prayed and prayed, God, would you remove this thorn from my side? And the answer that you get back is simply, my grace is sufficient. I'll teach you how to live with this thorn because I'm not taking it away. Regardless of what we tell other people, regardless of what we tell ourselves, it's how we respond in those times that we reveal what's really going on in our hearts, who's really in control of our lives, and whose will we're actually all about. And when you realize all of, the, all of the wealth of meaning to this little phrase Jesus offered in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, when you realize what it really means to do the will of his Father in heaven, you realize this isn't just something that's difficult to do. This is the most counterintuitive thing for the human heart. This is something that we have been failing to do ever since Genesis chapter 3, where we made the decision that, that, that we, rather than God, are going to be the Lord and the master and the sovereign and the king of our own lives. And that, the, the lie that passed into the hearts of Adam and Eve, Scripture says, is passed into all of our hearts. There's just something in the human heart. We, just, we refuse to believe that our, that, that our lives are safe in God's hands. We, we, we hold on to this notion, despite how many times we prove ourselves wrong, that we would be happier if we, rather than God, were free to define the parameters of our lives. So, so to just turn back on that, to just do the opposite of that, to cede total control of ourselves to God, it, it's the most, it just cuts across the grain of everything that makes us who we are. So the question that you're left with at the end of this, I'm sure the people at the end of the Sermon on the Mount had when they heard Jesus talk like this, the question is how on earth can we, how on earth can we do this? And the answer is as simple as it is profound. We're almost done, so I'd ask you to just lean into the end here because this is not an encouraging sermon until we get to this last part. The answer is, Jesus has not called us to do anything that he was not willing to do himself. And at the end of Jesus' life, hours before the cross, we see Jesus, just like Adam and Eve were, we see Jesus in his own garden called Gethsemane. And he's praying to God the Father, and as he does, the weight of what was ahead of him, the weight of the wrath of God began to descend on him, and it crushed him. And as he prayed, he asked the Father if there was any other way to save us. But at the end of that prayer, Jesus uttered the words, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What was happening in that moment is that Jesus submitted himself completely to the will of the Father, knowing that it would lead to his death so that you and I could submit completely to the will of the Father, knowing that it would lead us to life. Now, I want to call the worship team up and close with this. This idea of, of surrendering to God and handing your life over to God is it's just an impossibly expansive topic. And so I knew when I was putting this together that this is, this is a teaching that's going to mean something different to different people. So I thought the most appropriate way to end today was simply... First off, to acknowledge, I don't know what Jesus is calling you to face that you'd rather not face. Uh, I don't know what Jesus is calling you to do that you'd rather not do. What he's calling you to accept 
that you are having the hardest time accepting, where he might be calling you to go, that you'd rather not go. I don't know what the will of the Father is for you. It's going to look different in every one of our lives. What I do know is whatever his will is for your life, it will eventually require you to do the most difficult thing you and I will ever have to do, which is to trust God enough to hand our lives over to him, believing that our lives are safer in his hands than our own. If we refuse to do that, then according to Jesus, we are taking his name in vain. And none of us perfectly do this. And none of us can do this in and of our own power, which is why in order to do this and to do this better and more deeply throughout our lives, we have to go back and see what God has done for us. We have to see the mystery of the gospel, which shows us that the same God that calls us to lay our lives down for him first laid his life down for us. Because when we go back to that, and we see that, and that comes home, then we will know that even if we don't understand what God is leading us through, even if we can't see how obedience to him could possibly result in anything other than our own personal crucifixion, we'll know, even when we don't have the details, that a God who went through all of this for us is a God who can be trusted. I want to leave you today with a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you'll find him, and with him everything else thrown in. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. God, there's nothing more difficult for us to do than to simply give up control of our lives. It would have been so much easier if you gave us a checklist of things we could just knock off, but this is so much bigger than that. This is so much bigger than that. It's about accepting everything you send our way, even if it means our lives don't work out the way that we wanted them to. It means obeying everything you you command, even when we don't see how that's going to lead to anything other than pain for us. The only way we're going to be able to do this, God, the only way we're going to be able to let go of this white-knuckle grip that we all maintain on our lives is to see that you didn't spare your own son but freely gave him for us all and to see that Jesus didn't consider equality with you as something to be held on to and used for his own advantage, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant, an infinite act of condescension because nothing less, nothing less could have saved us. The only way we're going to be able to give you our lives is if we see in more than an intellectual way you gave your life for us. When we see it, we'll know that we can trust you. And as we learn to trust you more, we'll learn to let go of our lives and really be and really do whatever it is you've called us to do here. Please help us to be that kind of community with open hands that come before you, not as a consultant, but as a king. In the name of Jesus, amen.